Good morning. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace South Bay. Have you ever dressed a certain way, spoke a certain way, acted in a certain way to try to fit in with a group or prove that you belonged? Well, we all have. In fact, maybe we all have this week. We don't like admitting that because those aren't the sort of people we want to be. But here, Paul describes what's wrong with that kind of life of posturing. And he gives us the solution to it. Now, this passage can be thought of as dense, but we'll work through it and see that it contains some very powerful good news. So follow along as we hear from Galatians chapter 3. A reading from Galatians chapter 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for the good news found here. We ask that you would help us to hear and believe by your spirit you would apply these words to our hearts, that we would give up on trying to perform a law and ultimately receive the gift of salvation in Christ by your grace. Please do that among us now as we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in fifth grade, I was kind of a part of the cool crowd. Yeah, we had cool cliques in elementary school. And in fifth grade, for at least a few months, there was one piece of clothing that you had to have to be cool, a jean jacket. 
We all got them, right? It's all the cool kids had them, and you, you had to roll up the sleeves halfway up your forearm, and you got extra points if it wasn't just the traditional blue denim color. Mine was like this really awesome faded jean jacket. You could do stone-washed or acid-washed. And, and one other thing is that you had to have these obnoxious pins on the jacket, kind of like flair. And, and typically these pins had some kind of offensive saying on them. One pin that I had, I remember, said, is that your face or did your neck throw up? Fifth grade, right? And it only got worse into middle school and high school. Every year there's a new outfit, new vocabulary, new interests, the right movies, the right bands, the right people, the right sports, the right rules to break and the right rules never to break. And you think eventually this is going to stop. Sooner or later we'll grow up. But it doesn't stop. Depending on what you find valuable, there's a uniform, right? There could be yoga pants for some, work boots for others, hoodies for still others. There are activities, hikes for some, video games for others, bar hopping for others. There's a vocabulary. Some people talk a lot about machine learning. I have no idea what that is. Others are talking about their ridiculous wads. Still others are on the hunt for frosé. You know what frosé is? There's a menu. I eat clean. Well, I eat Chick-fil-A. And of course, there's politics. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. All of a sudden, the post office matters. We all adopt things that reinforce a persona, an identity that we want to project. And because we naturally walk by sight, what ends up important is how we compare, right? Our appearances, the, the badges of our identity. Do we look the part? Cool people look and act a certain way. Smart people look and act a certain way. Healthy people look and act a certain way. And of course, God's people look and act a certain way. This is what these false teachers were telling the Galatian Christians. God's people had a particular look, a particular lifestyle. Basically, they needed to adopt the Israelite look. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to eat kosher. They needed to follow and do all the things that Moses wrote down in the Old Testament law. They had to adopt this as their culture. And we still do that. As Christians or any other kind of people, we look for things that we need to do, how to perform, what to look like that can assure our membership and our status in this particular identity or group. And Paul says, no way. That's walking by sight. That's depending on your own performance and externals, what he calls here living and relying on the law. That won't get you anywhere. In fact, it will destroy you. Instead, the only thing that God's people can do is have total dependence, abandoning the works and appearances and relying completely on God's grace and his goodness. It's what Paul calls here faith. And so it's a very simple contrast. Living by the law divides and destroys. Living by faith forgives and unites. Just two points. And the first, living by law divides and destroys. Look at verses 9 and 10. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is saying here there are, there are just two ways to live. You can live by faith, depending on God to do all the work and making you whole and safe and right. 
or you can live by law, where God does some of the work, but you have to do your share. You have to do and not do all kinds of things that merit God's work and power in your life. So really, you're relying on yourself and your own goodness and consistency. Very few people back then or now believe that a human being could be technically perfect, morally righteous. But what most religious leaders thought then and now is that you have to at least approach moral righteousness. And Paul says, that's the path of destruction. He quotes Moses who told Israel as he's giving them the law that they will be cursed if they do not do all of the law. And the Bible explains and tells the story of how Israel failed to do the law and were cursed for it and were ultimately cast out of the land. Paul's point is, if you try to live by the law, your own goodness and faithfulness, you will be under a curse. Because the law is something no one can do ever, even close to consistently. If you refuse God's offer of grace, then you're left with performing righteousness yourself something you will fail at. You must either rely on God's grace and power or your own. We actually all sense this reality that we will never do enough or be enough as long as God is the objective standard for measurement. So instead, we begin to use humans as the standard for measurement. We compare. We judge ourselves and others based on comparisons, and those comparisons are based on some kind of law or standard. Depending on where we want to find our value, we create some visible measures measures for us and others. If parenting's where we find our value, then we will measure and compare how our kids behave versus other kids. What we do when our kids misbehave versus what other parents do. How our kids do athletically or socially or academically compared to others. There's a law that sorts and ranks. We do this with whatever we deem valuable. If it's career, then there are certain milestones to hit, right? Titles, compensation, IPOs. We can find our value in romance, fitness, intellect, whatever, We certainly do this with our Christianity. Mature believers speak a certain way. They pray a certain way. They have a certain level of biblical knowledge, and they no longer seem to struggle with certain sin patterns. This was the pitch these false teachers were making to the Galatian churches. Mature believers simply look like faithful Jews. They get circumcised. They eat kosher. They don't eat with other non-Jews. They follow the law. And if you aren't doing that, if you're not on that path then you're not in God's family. This is a powerful argument because we judge by appearance. We like law-keeping. We compare, and the people who seem more serious, more successful, more committed, with better external results, well, those are the people we want to emulate and be in community with. This is relying on the law, or as Paul will say uh, later in a few verses, the elementary principles of the world. We define, we categorize, we separate, we compare, we compete, and then we judge and divide. Sounds a lot like our culture, doesn't it? It is simply following the elementary principles of the world, or law-keeping. This past Friday, I, I posted a comment or question on our private pastor's Facebook page, 
And I was looking for a back and forth discussion. And one of the pastors on there who I deeply respect, and they are steeped in Reformed theology, that's our church tradition and theology, much better scholar than I am, said of my statement in response, he said, Bob, I've honestly never heard of a Reformed view which holds to that. And that wasn't a compliment. And then he went on to argue against me. Now, don't worry, I wasn't saying anything heretical. This was a very obscure and intramural argument about the uh, cultural mandate versus the Great Commission. 99% of you would not care. But anyway, I, I found his comment pushing my buttons. These weren't two pastors engaging in a valuable debate, iron sharpening iron. My reformed credentials were to some degree being questioned publicly in front of other pastors. It's important to me that I am seen and I see myself as reformed. And so I actually discovered a law that I was trying to keep. When something or someone pushes our buttons and gets us riled up, it might be because we're trying to keep a law to inform our identity. And when we rile other people up and push their buttons, it might be because we're expecting them to keep a law or we're challenging the law they're keeping. What gets you riled up and pushes your buttons? Where might you be trying to keep a law? You homeschool your kids or you send your kids to public school? You must not love your kids or God. You wear a mask or you don't wear a mask? You must not love your neighbors or God. You stand for the national anthem or you don't stand for the national anthem? You must not love your country or God. You read the Bible how often? You pray how many times a week? You still struggle with that kind of sin? You must not be a very good Christian. See, we apply a few external standards to ourselves and others to tell us how we and they measure up. Law-keeping leads us to divide and despise. Some people are so unaware of themselves that they just walk around despising and judging others, blaming others for anything wrong in their life in the world. They don't even realize how far short they fall of their own standards, let alone God's. This was Jesus' problem with the Pharisees. And like him, we just call these people self-righteous, hypocrites. But I don't think that's where most of us fall into at Grace South Bay. I think we first despise ourselves, then we despise others. We're equal opportunity despisers. We all, much of the time, feel like underachieving humans, underachieving family builders, underachieving career builders, certainly underachieving Christians. We are judging by sight and living by various laws and failing to keep them. We despise ourselves for it. And then we apply those laws to others. This person is superficial. That person has no social intelligence. This person sacrifices their kids for their career. That person makes an idol of their kids. I would never do that. This person poses like they're a good Christian. At least I know I'm not one and I don't pose like it. Can you see your attraction to laws and law keeping? Can you see it makes you miserable and sometimes a jerk? Can you see you will never impress God with your law keeping? Living by law destroys and divides, and we have no hope of living up to it, and then we use it to keep others out, which begs the question Paul has to answer. Why would God give us his own law then? And there are a number of reasons actually why, and Paul cites 
two of them here. We'll look at them briefly as we finish out this point. First, we'll look at verse 19. Paul asks, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. God intended for the law to reveal transgressions, which are intentional sins against God. The law shows people that they are sinners, even God's people. So by adding the law, verse 22, Scripture, or God, imprisoned everything under sin. Even Abraham's family, the chosen race, would come to see itself as imprisoned under sin. The law reveals everyone as a sinner. Why? Well, for the rest of verse 22. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law was meant to set the stage for and lead people to Jesus. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made. The promise of salvation through faith to everyone, including the Gentiles, was given to Abraham to be fulfilled by his offspring or seed. That's the same word. Paul says Jesus is that seed. The law comes in between Abraham and the seed to make the condition right for the seed, to receive the promises and bring blessing to everyone, to all the nations. On the Norwegian island of Svalbard, north of the Arctic Circle, is found the Global Seed Vault. It is a secure structure uh, built well above sea level into the permafrost ground so that the temperature is always well below zero, and it's designed to hold the world's largest collection of crop diversity in seed form. So that if there is ever a global catastrophe that wipes out our ability to grow food, we have all the genetic backups that we need. Global seed vault. That's sort of like what the law was. It kept the line of the promised seed safe until conditions were right for it to come and be released and bring blessing to the nations. Until even God's people were desperate for grace. Israel has the same problem we all do, sin. The law highlighted Israel's need and produced its Messiah, the answer to the law and the world's problem of sin and death. The point of all this, the whole story of the Old Testament, is for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus, to come to the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike. The law that divided prepared the ground for salvation by faith. So whereas living by law destroys and divides, living by faith unites and forgives. That's our second point. Living by faith unites and forgives. The solution to the curse of the law due to our inability to live up to it is found in Jesus' crucifixion. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The one person to actually completely fulfill the law and deserve its blessings instead suffered under its curse and yet rose from the dead. 
This means all who are in Jesus are now freed from the law and its curse. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The crucifixion of Jesus means the end of all laws that can define you and curse you. He paid for our poor performance and poor law-keeping so that now in him, there is no particular law-keeping or lifestyle to embrace. This is how Abraham's seed can be a blessing to all nations. The promise to Abraham in verse 8 wasn't that your family will absorb all nations or all nations will come to look like your family, but that you will be a blessing to all the individual nations. This is why there can be an infinite variety of Christians and Christian churches. There is no one Christian culture, so our churches can look and feel different from each other. In the cross, Jesus defeats the world's way of defining and dividing up, categorizing and comparing. He puts an end to all laws that divide. We can give up all of our fronting and posturing and fake personas. Now, some people in our culture have figured at least part of this out. They realize the curse of the law, any law really, trying to appear like anything, fulfilling some list of attributes, will only divide and lead to hypocrisy. But that rejection of law hasn't led to faith. Instead, it's led to cynicism. These people can give up personas because there's nothing actually to believe in. In that sense... They are cynically authentic. Cynically authentic people end up having a law as well. You have to prove you don't believe in much, that you're not going to be fake, that you're not going to be manipulated, that you're not going to get caught on the wrong side of culture or history, right? It's exhausting. But authenticity in our culture generally reduces to cynicism and very thin commitments and pretty low expectations. Christians can be cynically authentic too, except we use freedom in Christ as a cover for cynical authenticity. Sometimes it can feel like either you have to be a blind hypocrite or cynically authentic. But there is a third way. A life of faith is not cynical. It does not include mostly thin commitments and low expectations. But it does reject law-keeping and fake personas. It is authentic. How? Faith in Jesus is defined by repentance. And a life of repentance means deeper and deeper honesty about our failure to measure up to God's law and our attempts to fulfill other laws, all while keeping our eyes on the highest standard in the universe, Jesus. We can be authentic about who we are and at the same time hopeful and striving towards who we are becoming. Not cynical authenticity, but sincere authenticity. Christians are not defined by what they do or do not do. There is no law or standard or culture to live up to or fail at. You look at church history and the best Christians of every age had moral blind spots. The only telltale sign of a Christian is repentance over what they do and do not do and even the sins they're unaware of. The substance of faith is having nothing in yourself and everything in Christ. No value in you, all value in Jesus. There is no law keeping in you. 
Jesus has overcome the law for you and gives you a righteousness outside of your own law keeping. And on these terms, everyone and anyone can be brought into God's family. Their class, ethnicity, intelligence, relative morality, sin patterns, Enneagram number, right? Whatever, it does not qualify or disqualify you. All those things are subordinated. Everyone is a sinner and falls short of the glory of God. No one can claim merit on their own. Everyone needs Jesus to take the curse from them. We are all united in our need for grace. God's people have one unifying action and habit, repentance, recognizing the bankruptcy of their own law-keeping. God's people have one unifying look. They have one uniform, neediness. Neediness is the Christian uniform. Do you like looking needy? I doubt it. For a long time, as a younger Christian, I struggled with this conflict between trying to be cool and being a Christian because I kind of intuitively got that being a Christian meant embracing weakness and neediness. And cool can be defined in all kinds of ways, but for sure, the opposite of cool is neediness. Few of us ever want to look needy. But that's what we all are. So the more strength and power you want to project, the more you want to look in control and have it all together, the more fake it till you make it, even defending yourself, you are inviting the division and destruction of the law into your life. Where in your life are you resisting being needy? Work, family, spirituality, sensuality, friendships? Where we resist neediness, we are often missing God's work and power. Because a needy person is ready for a gift or a promised inheritance. Look at verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. God always intended for salvation to come to all people through a promise. Why? Because that's the fundamental reality of all existence. Everything hangs on God's free goodness and kindness. He upholds all things by the power of his word. Of course, our salvation and flourishing would come only through the power of his word, not through the power of our work. God promised Abraham before circumcision, before the law, that Abraham would be a great nation and that Abraham had credited righteousness through faith, and that the Gentiles would be blessed in him after that same credited righteousness through faith. The promise was unconditional. God will do it. And so adding the law couldn't take an unconditional promise and make it conditional. Imagine going to an attorney to put your estate in order and to have your will drawn up, and you're talking with the attorney, he says, sure, yeah, I can do that, that'd be fine. Just know that after you die, I'll probably make a few changes to your will, right? You'd walk out. That's crazy. You can't do that. Once it's written down and the person dies, the will is set, really, in stone. That's the point. 
Paul is making. You can't change the promises. You can't make them conditional after they've been made. The Bible is the story of grace, God's promise of salvation reaching all nations. It's not good advice. It's not a law with conditions. If you do this, you will be rescued. No. The law contained in the Bible is meant to point us to the promised Savior, Jesus, who can rescue us from our sin. And when we are attempting to keep the law, any law, we are trying to prove our worth and justify ourselves. Receiving God's promise by faith means someone else will justify you. You will be forgiven for your failures and and how you fail to measure up. That this comes by God's sheer promise and not any of your own effort means you are set free from the law. You can let go of comparisons and trying to measure up. Being a Christian is recognizing that every human being is equal in need, having the same problem, sin and death, and that only Jesus is the solution to that problem. He himself earned forgiveness and eternal life for us on the cross, taking the curse of the law. Because of this, we can now actually look at God and we can see Jesus fill that yawning gap between us and our creator. We don't have to look away anymore and compare ourselves with each other to feel okay. No law can give us our identity or have that kind of power in our lives anymore. Anyone and everyone can be brought into God's family on the basis of faith, not performance, simply trusting in Jesus' work. And that can create a new unity in the midst of a despising and dividing world. It's what our world needs. Well, you might say, well, wait a minute, Bob. There's still plenty of disunity between Christians and non-Christians. And, of course, within Christianity itself, there's lots of divisions. But the gospel has the capacity to unify where no law can. Because it's not based on external actions or identities. It's not based on relative morality. It's not based on anything that can divide or destroy. The law has done its job. It has united all of us as needy sinners, whether or not we recognize it. According to any law or standard, Christians are no better than non-Christians. The only difference is Christians recognize their total bankruptcy and they see their only hope in Jesus. This actually sets Christians up to be peacemakers. A Christian who pursues justice on the gospel's terms is always offering forgiveness and reconciliation, even to oppressors and doers of injustice. We've all heard the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. Oftentimes, right, depending on the sin, that seems possible. How about the phrase, hate the injustice, love the doer of injustice? That sounds much harder. We have to even check, is that right? But scripture reveals we are all doers of injustice. And Jesus hung on a tree to save us from ourselves and all the injustice that we do. So how can we say we're any better? The gospel Salvation of needy sinners by promise, not law-keeping, empowers us to love everyone because we are all the same in our neediness. We can identify with every person in their neediness and point them to Christ as their solution. Christians, of course, are to resist oppression and injustice, defend the weak and the marginal, but additionally, they can extend hope and grace to oppressors as well. No one is silenced, shamed, cast out, 
or canceled. Anyone and everyone can be reconciled. And that can be really hard to swallow until you can recognize that Jesus had to hang on the cross for you. I heard a story about a woman uh, who is a tender of one of our churches in the southeast. She raises chickens and sells them to all kinds of people, many repeat customers, many non-Christians. But when she sells the chickens, she tells customers that the chickens like to listen to the RUF hymn channel on Spotify. RUF hymns are generally what much of what we sing in worship, right? So she's telling them how the chickens listen to worship music. She says it keeps the chickens calm. Anyway, one night around midnight, one of her customers, a woman, calls her. And this woman's wife had just left her. And the customer asked, why am I not enough? Those songs my chickens listened to made me want to call you and ask you that question. Why am I not enough? So they started talking about Jesus. And a number of ladies are now watching church online for the first time. You are not enough. Sooner or later, your failure at keeping the law should show you, you are not enough. None of us are enough. But Jesus is enough. And when we come to the end of ourselves and we recognize our neediness, when we give in to grace and we give up on the law, Jesus enters our lives by his spirit and he changes us. He does that once, but then he does it over and over again as we live lives of repentance. The only Christian action, the only truly distinctive Christian lifestyle there is. We don't get in by grace and stay in by law or culture or performance. We get in by grace, we stay in by grace, and we grow by grace all because of God's promise through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray for that now. God, we're grateful for this good news again, and we ask that you would help us to receive this as your promise, your word fulfilled to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Help us to recognize our own bankruptcy, that the value is not in ourselves or our actions or our culture or anything else, but the value is all in Jesus, and let that free us from law-keeping and performance and for things that cause us to divide and judge and despise. Let us be peacemakers because we know that no one's needier than us, but that you have met our need in Jesus. Let us bring Jesus to others. We pray this in his name. Amen.